A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the show today. If you are ready to revel in wrong think, I, I want you to understand that there is a respectable, yes, upstanding kind of wrong think that uh, everybody should be willing to exercise in. But you're going to understand it a lot better after uh, we, we introduce you to my guest, uh, Dr. Shannon Brooks. He is the founder and president of Monticello College. And Shannon, uh, there's a story in and of that, but uh, I'm, I'm only beginning to hint at some of the various uh, hats you have worn during your lifetime. Um, we're going to talk about a subject today that, that not, Shannon, not a lot of people are familiar with. And, and, and it starts with the word LIBOR. You were the guy who introduced me to this word, but I'm going to ask you, for the sake of my audience, when they hear the word LIBOR, what is that supposed to mean? Yeah, well, thanks, Brian. Uh, and, and thanks for having me on. Um, LIBOR is a, an ancient word. It comes from Greek and Roman times and, and basically relates to the idea of, of having a certain skill set to maintain your liberty, to maintain uh, uh, a non-slavery status in society. Um, it, it goes way back to the ancient Greeks when, when being LIBOR meant that you, you had a skill set, you could read, you could write, you own property, you could engage in contract, you, you could protect your assets and, and a court of law, um, you, you can engage the legislature to, to pr- protect long-term assets. Um, that's where that's where originated. Um, later on, we kind of have a different look. You get into the Renaissance, where liberal arts are still this idea of securing liberty, maintaining property. Humanities now become more of an academic approach by the 20th century, with with a big push toward democracy, equality, and security. We have most people looking to those things from the from the government, but you still have a group. You have the entrepreneurs, you have the elite who are focused heavily on the liberal arts, the idea of maintaining property, the ideal of maintaining your liberty, uh, protecting your rights. Uh, you know, we kind of lost the idea of what LIBOR is in our culture, but we're Western civilization. It is a foundational stone in, 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 in Western Civ. And, and I think people, once they hear it described, at least in practical terms, We'll start to realize, hey, this, no wonder these are the kinds of ideas that have, have survived the ages. We're not just talking about, oh, yes, it's so you know quaint to study what people thought 3,000 years ago just for the sake of knowing what they thought. It turns out what they thought actually has relevance in our time. And I think we, it's, it's easy to forget that because after all, oh, well, look, I have a smartphone. Huh, what did they have? Well, crack a book and you'll find out they had a lot more knowledge at their disposal than you probably thought. Right. And, and it comes down to economic security. We, we, we teach on campus, you cannot have political autonomy until you've got economic, economic autonomy. And of course, almost no Americans have economic autonomy, meaning uh, debt free. They've got assets. They, they don't have to work because they have assets that are producing. If you go back to, to, uh, to literature, uh, European literature, where they always talked about, you know, he's, you know, uh, they're going to marry somebody because he's he's got so many pounds. Uh, they're talking about the fact that he had assets and he was 
producing interest off of those assets, and that's what he could live on, not not the not the principal. And we don't think that way today. We we think paycheck to paycheck. We think paycheck plus a credit card to paycheck plus a credit card. And because we don't have that that economic um, autonomy, we have little to no political liberty or autonomy. Well, and we have some added difficulty now, too. What with the great portions of the economy shut down involuntarily, you know, to in response to COVID-19. Uh, so in a sense, now we're, it's stimulus check to stimulus check. I mean, it's right. it, the, the situation is dire. But for someone who is in tune with the principles that you're talking about, um, and, and it, we're not talking like hardcore survivalism so much as a well-rounded, self-reliant life that's that's rich not only in practical skills but also in practical knowledge uh, particularly how did we get here from there right right well and 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 we focus on what we call liber education brian um which is five elements basically it's liberal arts humanities manual arts uh abundance mentality slash being a producer and then spiritual uh uh, a, a sense of practical spirituality and the liberal arts are obvious. You know, you've got to know how to, to, to work QuickBooks. You've got to know how to run a business. You've got to know how to balance your checkbook for crying out loud. You got to know how to invest and save and all those things. Um, humanities, you, you've got to know how to engage in your community and, and have decorum. Uh, manual arts, this is where we find really uh, what we stick out. The idea of knowing how to use a shovel, um, yeah. knowing how to, <laughs> how, how to, how to raise a chicken, you know, from from a from a, a little chick to you know chicken on a plate, eggs, uh, grow your own food, all these things. Alternative construction, and so while we're doing about thirty hours or so a week of academics, these students are doing another twenty hours a week of manual arts, um, and. Those two together, we discovered a long time ago that if you don't have those two together, manual arts and the liberal arts, you end up with sheeple. You end up with people who who just follow along. But if you've got, you know, the smartest people I ever have ever known. Now, maybe not, you know, intellectually, academically smart, <laughs> but common sense, just just make it happen are farmers. Right. Oh, and absolutely. Of course, that's, that's what my book is about is, you know, starts out with chapter on Georgics and and how that's impacted society um, from day one. OK, tell me about your book. This is the first that that, uh, that our listeners are going to be hearing something about this. We talked about it, uh, I think, a few months ago when when you uh, when your book first released. Um, but for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, tell us about the book that you've written. Well, it's called American Killing the American Dream. And basically what we're saying is. Pretty much how we live our lives today in this country is killing the American dream. We are living so diametrically opposed to what the what the founders intended um, from from early on, be, before the founding of this nation. Why people came here? It was to be it was to be free. It was to have liberty. It was to to uh, build things and be creative and and take calculated risk and all those things. And you look at our culture today; everything's about security and 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 taking no risk and being safe. And it, it, we we've completely destroyed what this nation was designed to do, and that was create men and women who create families, who are financially sound, who believe in a sense of God and and you know an inevitability uh, in in the next life, and and the idea of of doing our part. Um, to make society better rather than looking to government, looking to to others to take care of us. 
I am just, I'm sitting here marveling, first of all, at how true those words ring, and secondly, at how, um, how the mainstream has been led to believe something entirely different. Now, one thing I do have to ask you, Shannon, what you're describing, the ideal that you're describing here, doesn't necessarily have to take place in a rural environment, does it? I mean, in other words, a person could, they could still be, you know, they could be a doctor, they could be, you know, an urbanite, but they could still have these principles if if they wish. In other words, you you don't have to go live on the farm necessarily to to be living this dream. I guess you do have to spend some time to understand the skills, though, right? Right, right. No, you, you, you can do it in an urban setting. You know, one of the things we teach here is permaculture, that you can do that in an urban setting. But it's more difficult, Brian, because okay. you have all these other influences. You're more inclined to take help when it's when it's offered than to learn how to do it yourself. Um, our graduates, the intent of, our, of, of, of this institution for our graduates is they can leave here, build their own home, debt-free, grow their own food, generate their own electricity, um, create a small business and, and produce enough to live off of that and provide disinterested community leadership. That, that's the ultimate thing. You, you can do that anywhere. It's easier in an environment where you are more in touch with the earth, where you're mm-hmm. more in touch with nature, um, but it can be done anywhere. Sure. I want you to take a second and define disinterested. So just so people understand what that word means. Sure. Um, Jefferson said that that uh, in, in describing this, he said that uh, John uh, that John Adams was as disinterested as as the being that created him. And what he's talking about, this idea of you serve community, not to line your own pockets, not to get anything accolades. It's it's basically for honor and and for a divine smile. That that's why you serve. You serve because you have a skill set that can can help humanity, and you do it in such a way that that you that you are helping others, but not gaining financially, you know, to yourself. In fact, the idea is you go in and you don't get anything to you except the accolades of your neighbors. That's it. So it's not about uh, it's not about titles. It's not about awards. It's not about status symbols. It's about impact. It's about impact um, in a way that benefits others, not yourself. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break. Dr. Shannon Brooks with Monticello College is my guest. We're going to continue our conversation. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Dr. Shannon Brooks. He is the founder and president of Monticello College. And I can imagine a few people scratching their head and going, I don't know that I have heard of that. Now, you do have a you have a lovely website, Shannon. So for the sake of those who want to go check it out online, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, MonticelloCollege.org. So MonticelloCollege.org. Lots and lots of pictures. And this is important because uh, I don't think people can fully appreciate uh, what we're talking about. When we talk about a mountain campus, I mean, this is it's unlike anything I think most people have seen. And and yet having been there myself, I'm going to tell you that there, there's there is something about that area of southern Utah 
there's a peace there, and and I don't know. There, there's something very cool about it for people who are, are who are into that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> you you should probably take a closer look. Well, you know, and 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 let me just say for your listeners, we're about an hour south of Moab on Highway 191. Um, if you blow through, if you don't know what you're looking for, you'll go right past us. You won't because we're out of we're not in the town. We're out in, in the uh, wilderness. We've got 82 acres on the edge of National Forest, and um, we're at 7,500 feet above sea level, and um, so that there's challenges there. We heat with wood here. Uh, we're off grid. Uh, we, we have our own animals. Uh, we provide uh, a good share of our own food. Where the goal is to provide all of our own food. Um, and kids get a chance to can and dehydrate and ferment and all these things um, so that they really have these, you know, when they may never do this stuff again, Brian. They may never raise animals or do anything. But what it does is it gives you a confidence that you take with you no matter what else you do in your life. That's what we're after. Well, and I think it, it, it helps a person's worldview become more well-rounded because you actually have an understanding of all the things that the rest of us are taking for granted. You know, I, I go to work, I go to the grocery store, I buy what I need, and I show up at home. But for all of that to come together to make my comfortable home and the meal that's sitting on my table, I'm very detached from what it took, you know, to raise that food, to to, right. to get it to the store, to, to craft, you know, a... a solid dwelling that I can trust to to hold up in in bad weather or in high winds or whatever. Anyway, you get a you get a stronger appreciation of what it takes to to conceive and execute projects, what what it takes to to build the knowledge and skills. And I, and I would guess that among your students you find there's a lot they don't take for granted like like others might be inclined to. Well, you know, yeah, when you have to for example, heat a building with wood, when you have you're generating electricity and you've had three days of clouds, um, you have to meet out that electricity that's in that battery because when it's gone, it's gone, right? And um, we we have uh, what we call because I was in the military, we we had a practice there called submarine showers, which was a three minute shower because uh, we had limited water um, on campus. We we engage in the 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 campus shower, which is five minutes. You get five minutes in the shower, use it how you will. Or, or five, I should say five minutes of water and um, <laughs> and and it really makes you you know think about these things instead of taking everything for, for granted um, so yeah uh, another thing I wanted to mention Brian was was that we have uh, what's called uh, a permaculture design course that we do here um, San Juan Permaculture Institute on campus and uh, the last year and this year pr- probably every year for the next while anyway the last few days of that 12-day event uh, is a straw bale build. We, 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 last year, we built a 600-square-foot uh, straw bale building from foundation to roof, and it was, it was amazing. And we're going to do that again this year. So if they're interested, you know, go to our website. They can check that out. Reach out to us. i uh, be happy to talk to them. Give me a working definition of permaculture. I think that's a term a lot of people may be hearing for the first time. Yeah. Per- permaculture is a set of principles and ethics that allow us to work with nature, to understand patterns. Instead of fighting nature, we work with nature and it can apply to farming, it can apply to running a business, it can apply to just interacting with humans. But in our application, it's mostly about how to grow food, how to to live on the land, taking advantage of the patterns that exist and there's a plethora of things about nature that we don't give it two, two seconds 
uh, thought about, but when you when you factor those in and you work with nature, so much more is happening. Um, it's just, it's really powerful. And, and so we, we teach those uh, in a 12-day course here. Talk to me about uh, the, the education aspect in terms of, Shannon, why is it relevant in our time to examine what uh, great thinkers have been saying for thousands of years? What can they really well, offer you know, us? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. And uh, the, the fastest answer, the, the quickest answer is that human nature never changes. There are so much going on today that you can go back to ancient Rome and find, yeah, they were in togas maybe, but what was happening and what, what was going on with, are very, very similar to now. And so for us to, to not make the mistakes of the past in the future, we have to understand the past. We have to see how, thing, how things went wrong and we can use that as a roadmap and really make some better choices in our time, but you've got to study that. And you know, that includes studying Hebrew and Latin and Greek and, and you know, the great works and science and all these things um, so that we get a real sense of what it means to be human in the past and plan for humanity in the future um, in our present. Okay. Um, what's, talk to me about uh, your, your student body. What, uh, what ages are, are you, uh, what age are, you, are your students? Do you, do you have students yeah. of all, all ages? Yeah, they're, they're, they're typically um, normal age. They start about 18 on up. Um, I have students that are starting out this year. At, they're 28. And so there's quite a span there. We've incorporated a new program in the last few years called uh, Micro Semester. Kids can come for a 26 day, we embed them right into the program depending on where they come during the school year. And they can spend 26 days being a full-time student on campus. About half of those kids, we have about 20 or so that come every year to do that. And about half of those end up enrolling as full-time students uh, the next year. And I think you can start at about age 15 or 16 with, with the micro semester. Okay. So the website is MonticelloCollege.org. And, and yes. Shannon, I got to tell you, I, I've been to the campus on, on a number of occasions, and uh, you have so much beautiful scenery. Whoever, whoever you're working with on your, your website, it, you, they do justice to, to the beauty of that campus. There, there are so many great videos and, and uh, you know, f- photographs that can give people a, a sense of the great natural beauty. And, uh, you know, to, to really experience some of it, though, you're going to have to you're going to have to be there yourself. And it sounds like and, you, and you make that easy for people. Awesome. And we have a YouTube channel as well, just Monticello College. And there's a ton of videos there. While I've got you here with me, I want to I want to just we've got about two minutes left before before we're done here. But I want to talk about the power of colloquia. And, and yeah. Yeah, this is a word that not a lot of people are going to be familiar with. But what happens when you sit down with a number of people, you know, a group of people, maybe 10 friends or so, you all have read a book and then you get together and discuss it. What happens when people do that? Well, yeah, first of all, very quickly, that's how we do 99% of what we do on campus. It's real simple. You read, you discuss, you write. That's it. Um, There's other things in there, but but that's it. Yeah, when you come together with a shared experience like that and you start ferreting out ideas and themes and, 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 uh, you know, different perspectives that people have and they come together, sometimes we'll sit in a class and we'll have four people talking all at the same time. Sometimes... It's, it's total silence for a minute or two because everyone's cogitating and really thinking about what that person just said. The, the, the ability to take fiction and nonfiction alike and find real life application be, uh, you know, grows large when you have all these people 
coming from their different perspectives in a group setting for two or three hours at a, at a shot. It's not 90 minutes. It's not 50 minutes. It, it could be three hours. So here's yeah. here's the thing. You could be pursuing things like that, or you could be arguing with strangers on the Internet. One of those activities is actually going to, to make you and the people you're engaging with better at the end of it, and the other is just going to make everybody angry. But, uh, hey, we all have choices. Shannon, thank you so much for being my guest, and, and thank you to Monticello College for being a sponsor of this program. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thank you so much for being a part of my growing audience. And if I could could ask this small favor, if you find value... In the guests that I have, the articles that I share with you, the commentary, whatever it is. If you just if you just like to hear me talk, that's okay. Some people do. I don't I don't get it either, but um, no, please let other people know that uh, this is an alternative. This is a place where, where they can find a take that most likely is going to be a little bit different. I'm not guaranteeing it's going to be right, but I will definitely give you something to think about. You don't even have to agree. You can just do with it as you will. And I'm not even going to be the least bit offended. So I, I love words. And and this comes as a, somewhat of a surprise from the standpoint of I used to hate writing. I, I really dis, I just I, I found it very distasteful and and uh, laborious. And so writing papers in school and especially my first year or two of college, I really man, I struggled with it. But now I love words <laughs> and I love people who use words to create, uh, you know, beautifully crafted, clear ideas and messages. It's, it's just it's a thing. But it's strange to look around us and see how many words have, have shifted in their meaning. They don't mean the same thing. And, and I mean, I'm look, I'm in my 50s and there are words that I look at that uh, that have, have changed so much in meaning. It's almost not the same thing. In fact, it bears almost no resemblance whatsoever to, to how these words were used when I was a kid. So when I saw the article, A Wash in Warped Words, this is from, uh, I believe it's from uh, Gary Gallas on the American Institute for Economic Research website. I had to dive in, and, and I think he is really onto something. And look, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist. Uh, if you read, if you appreciate words from the, from the standpoint of, I like to read what other people have written, including literature, including commentary, you know, um, you will probably get a lot from this article. Got a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Gary Gallus says, we think in words. We communicate in words. Laws are written in words. So competence at any of those acts requires clarity about what the words mean. Consequently, there's always a danger that changes in how words are used, as with a postmodern culture prone to redefining key terms, can uh, introduce confusion with potentially serious consequences. Now, such confusion can play out in many places, he says, such as C.S. Lewis's The Death of Words discussion of how using words such as gentleman and Christian devolved from factual descriptions into words for good, I approve, and bad, I disapprove. 
And the effects can be dangerous because when you have killed a word, you have also blotted from the human mind the thing that the word originally stood for. C.S. Lewis said men do not long continue to think what they have forgotten how to say. That's profound. Gary Gallus says perhaps the most dangerous area of redefinition is with regard to government because it is the only institution generally accepted as allowed to use coercion on others. Changes in the direction that those in power prefer can expand that power by increasing how much coercion they can impose on citizens. Further, America's unique history is replete with insights about government and liberty, which can be morphed into very different meanings. In other words, there was a good reason George Orwell asserted that the decline of a language must ultimately have political and economic causes in his famous Politics in the English Language, celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. As he put it, many political words, democracy, socialism, freedom, patriotic, realistic, justice, have each of them several different meanings which cannot be reconciled with the other. Words of this kind are often used in a consciously dishonest way. And Gary Gallus points out, this, the consequence is strikingly applicable to 2021. In our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. This is Orwell. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness in service of a mass of lies, evasions, folly, hatred, and schizophrenia. And the solution is to refocus on clarity as a necessary first step toward political regeneration. So Gary Gallus says, while some have apparently inoculated themselves against recognizing the hypocrisy and mendacious uh, misrepresentations that are uh, such a large part of political language, it only takes a little thoughtfulness to see at least some of the abuses. But he says such scattershot awareness of one abuse here and another there still far underestimates the adverse consequences, because seldom is there only one motivated distortion involved in promoting a given more government argument, and multiple distortions can make it all but impossible to think clearly about those issues. So to see just how extensive the rhetorical abuse has become, and how difficult political language designed to make true lies sound truthful, and to give appearance of solidity to pure wind, as Orwell put it, can make adequate reasoning, he says, consider just a few of the booby-trapped words. Here's one you've been hearing a lot. Unity. He says, following tradition, Joe Biden's inaugural address emphasized unifying America using unity eight times, if I recall. But he says, given how Democrats have acted toward electoral opponents, leaving no ad hominem attack unmade and no implication of evil unsaid or uninsinuated, one could question whether any unity other than Frank Sinatra's my way was ever actually considered. Most importantly, unity in the sense of agreement on the specific ends that we want is not just absent but unattainable. Once we expand our view past vague and aspirational feel-good generalities, Americans disagree on almost everything, and our goals are often diametrically opposed. He says we all want food, clothing, shelter, health care, etc., etc., but we want different types and amounts, and further, we do not want them of the same quality at the same time, in the same place, or for the same persons, not to mention financed by different parties. We also widely vary in the trade-offs we're willing to make among our desires. Once we focus on the trade-offs actually faced, scarcity necessitates that, that, that ends our conflict. And mutually inconsistent ends cannot be magically unified. 
So he says the unity potentially achievable, uh, potentially achievable then does not involve, at least typically involve, specific ends we agree on. This is why wartime, when all of our often very different lives and circumstances are at risk, is such an exception in creating national unity, at least in opposing enemies, and why politicians are so eager to declare supposed wars on poverty, drugs, homelessness, homelessness rather, ad infinitum. What we could possibly reach unity on is how to best reconcile and mutually achieve our different and conflicting ends. But politics fails spectacularly in that task. When people pursue their ends through what Franz Oppenheimer calls the political means, success routinely consists in taking others' resources. In contrast to the economic means of voluntary arrangements, such unifying political initiatives, says Gary Gallus, are simply ways to coerce those who disagree into bearing burdens against their will. But he says, when I forcibly take your property for purposes you would reject, I violate your rights and reduce the means you have to achieve any of your ends. That's why precious little unity inhabits, inhabits politicians calls for it. Now, he says, there is one thing we might agree on. Equal freedom to peacefully pursue our own goals. He says all individuals gain from the mutual preservation of their lives, liberties, and estates, as John Locke put it, for our pursuit of happiness, in Jefferson's words. This means defending everyone's freedom and property rights along with the rights to trade and contract. As David Hume noted long ago, once property rights are established and uniformly defended, all subsequent arrangements are voluntary. No one can impose their will by violating others' rights. The definition of justice, the traditional definition, to give each his own, is met. But that also means anyone who proposes that government expand further beyond those very limited ways, it could actually, you know, for instance, improve the Constitution, described as our general welfare, has, has clearly rejected seeking any kind of achievable unity. He says when government overrides people's choices instead of protecting them, it imposes domination rather than allowing voluntary cooperation and mutual consent. This, then he says the rhetoric of political unity, no matter how seemingly heartfelt the plea or how many times it's repeated, is nothing more than camouflage for imposing injustice on some to help others. Next, he talks about the word we. We is a useful adjunct to unity in, in increasing misunderstanding about government. Even the mere fact that the word is plural suggests that unity exists, whether it does in any way beyond an agreement among some to rob others. He says it also enables the logical error of equivocation, changing the meaning of something in the middle of a statement. For instance, it has frequently been asserted that we as Americans pay for Social Security and we get the benefits. But the we who have been net beneficiaries, primarily those in the startup generations whose benefits were massively greater than their costs, is quite different from the younger we now left owing the tab. Multi-trillion dollar redistribution is hidden by simply aggregating those treated very differently into a single we, as when, say, minimum wages are advocated to help the poor as a group, even though the poor who lose jobs and hours and opportunities as a result are harmed. I think it was Eric uh, Peters who pointed out you got to be very careful when anybody starts using the word we. They're angling for something. All right, we will take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you an article by Gary Gallas. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research. A wash in a, in a, a wash in warped words. I'm not trying to turn it into a tongue twister, but I somehow managed. He's warning us about how our language is shifting and changing and words that we hear in common usage, for instance, words like unity, words like we, can actually be providing some kind of rhetorical cover for something that uh, is very different from what they claim to represent. He points out here the connection between we and you makes uh, the, the term slippery, in part because Americans have moved on from thou, singular, and ye, plural, to you. That can be either singular or plural. Someone could say, this will protect you, singular. And it could mean it will protect the individual I'm referring to and harm others. Or it could mean this will protect the individual I'm referring to without harming others. You need not refer to everyone affected. And even if someone said this will protect you, plural, it could mean it will protect the group I'm referring to and harm others. Or it might mean I will prote- it will protect the group I'm referring to without harming others. His point is, again, you need not refer to everyone affected. Unity requires that no one's rights are infringed, infringed rather. But he says the word is routinely used to describe something very different. And then he brings us to the word rights. He says both unity and we have a further connection to abuses of the word right, because its typical use fails to make an absolutely crucial connection or distinction rather between negative rights or liberty from coercion and positive rights. For others to be required to give you things. Positive rights to housing, education, health care, etc. provided or mandated by government require that someone else must be forced to pay for them. But that inherent obligation necessarily violates others' rights by taking their income and property without their consent. In other words, violating their negative rights not to be robbed by government. And that stands in direct contrast to our Constitution with its strictly limited enumerated powers and the Bill of Rights, not to mention the Declaration of Independence's assertion of unalienable rights, which focused on protecting our negative rights. So he says the only rights that can be unalienable for all must be consistent with the equal rights of others. Every citizen can enjoy negative rights against government abuse without infringing on anyone else's equal rights because they impose on others only the obligation not to interfere. But when the government creates new positive rights, extracting the resources to pay for them necessarily takes from others inalienable rights and liberty. Consequently, if a politician promises to create or defend Americans' rights, for that to refer to the rights all of us have as individuals he or she must be speaking of negative rights. That's, al- that's almost never the case today. Now when a politician promises new and improved rights for some, they're promising to violate the negative rights our country was created to defend. By the way, if you, if you haven't given some thought to the negative rights versus positive rights, that's a really crucial distinction you have to be able to make. How can I know that the right we're talking about is a natural right? I like the rule of thumb that Joseph Sobran used to give, and that was genuine rights. In other words, authentic, natural rights are what limit the government's power over us. Forbid it to interfere in our freedom of conscience, freedom of worship, uh, free press, freedom of speech, 
right to keep and bear arms, right to, to privacy, etc. Those are natural rights and they all limit government's power. Positive rights, that's where you create obligations to government. So if you are being subjected to positive rights, even though it sounds like a good thing, well, that's positive. Nope, that just means government is claiming more power to make you do something. Next, he talks about freedom and liberty and says the distortions introduced when promoting positive rights while ignoring the negative rights that must then be violated also appear when people speak in terms of freedom or liberty. Freedom is freedom from having our negative rights violated by anyone, with government typically tasked as the enforcement agent. Liberty is freedom from having government itself violate our negative rights. However, the fact that government cannot be trusted to keep itself in check is why we have a constitution to limit its abusive power. But that citizens must be the ultimate check on government, which is why our founders put such a strong emphasis on watchfulness in defending our liberty. Perhaps the most famous example can be seen in FDR's Four Freedoms speech. Two of the four freedoms, freedom of, free, of speech and expression and freedom of every person to worship God in his own way, are negative rights found in the First Amendment. They can, be, they can be enjoyed universally because the freedom of one does not detract from the same freedom for others. The only role they create for government is disallowing others' intrusions on those rights. They defend liberty for all against coercion. Now, after FDR's third freedom, freedom from want, cannot be similarly universal. It commits government to provide some more goods and services than their voluntary interactions with others would provide which infringes on others' equal freedom to acquire goods and services voluntarily using their own resources. Similarly, FDR's fourth freedom, freedom from fear, that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor, correctly asserts that citizens are to be protected against other governments' depredations. Unfortunately, it says nothing about a nation's aggressions against its own citizens. And with his third freedom requiring government aggression to get the resources required for its benevolence, it omits what is often the greatest threat to the citizen's liberty. So the upshot is that since the four freedom speech, politicians and those who seek to advance their interests at others' expense have been able to use the language of freedom to significantly contract our liberty. Then there's the words fair and just. Rhetorical subterfuge with respect to rights or freedom is echoed in fairness or justice claims, probably because in most cases fairness translates as more for me or for those I want someone else to assist. If you were willing to provide the resources, you would simply do so, not call for it to be done by someone named not you. In other words, it amounts to little more than an assertion that the intended beneficiaries have positive rights to something, while ignoring the violation of others' negative rights inherent in providing them. And those latter rights are the basis of our self-ownership and the voluntary arrangements they enable, which comprise the only means of meeting the traditional definition of justice, which is to give each his own. Other legitimate unfairness claims also arise from the creation of additional positive rights. Ending or cutting back on some positive right created by government policy once people have come to anticipate its continuance is unfair even if such policies were unjustified, ineffective, or wasteful. In other words, it's unfair to undo things that should not be done in the first place. It is often unfair to do that. There's also words like social that's become one of the most confusing expressions in our entire moral and political vocabulary. Actually, he's quoting Frederick Hayek here. Gary Gallus says, The best illustration is social justice. Since the time of Cicero, justice meant to give each his own 
but social justice requires that justice, as understood for millennia, is violated. In other words, social justice means necessary injustice. Social, he says, should really be called anti-social. And there are other warped words. I mean, it's far from an exhaustive list. Capitalism. When people describe what's really crony capitalism, he says, as capitalism, even though it violates its principles, they equate not capitalism with capitalism, which is then falsely blamed for nearly everything under the sun. And there are smaller words that to play supporting roles in warping meanings toward more government power. Voluntary market arrangements are condemned as using people, followed by some form of therefore we should restrict them. Similarly, need is used as a way to imply that someone other than the one using the word must be forced to provide for it. But that incantation does not legitimately override people's rights. He talks about the danger of combining warped words. And give some really great examples. And I love the example he gives here of, you know, if you, he says, tr- to illustrate how words have been twisted, check out this saying, without, without stretching reality must, much at all, imagine someone who favors a particular expansion of statism saying something like, we must all unify to maintain all of our rights as the only way to achieve justice and defend our democracy and freedom. Now, he says such a sentence is so full of ambiguity and self-contradiction, it's hard to imagine such a conversation could be productive of clarity and agreement. And Gary Gallus says, as Orwell noted, the malleability of language has allowed new iterations of statism to masquerade as means to the good society because linguistic misdirection has made foolish thoughts about social organization more viable. He says at the same time, it has made it harder to communicate the benefits that are only achievable through liberty. But he says uh, that's a daunting impediment to recovering the liberty that uh, we have been misled away from. But improving understanding, ours first, then others, seems to be the only peaceful way to do so. To which I say, amen, bro. Gary Gallas is absolutely right. You want to do your part to recover liberty, do what he's suggesting here, and start by improving your own understanding. Baby steps. A little bit at a time. It adds up. This is The Brian Hyde Show.